Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. The young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Joseph received direction twice in this package, uh, package passage. He had, stu- had he stuck with the direction he received first, without continuing to listen, Jesus' life could have been in danger. This highlights to us the importance of continuing to listen even after receiving direction. Faith comes by hearing, not by having heard. I thought that was great. Uh, it still go, it goes on. One might say, if God wanted me to change up my fast after a week, why wouldn't he tell me from the start? The same reason he didn't tell Abraham before Isaac was born that he would be required to sacrifice him. We're simply not ready for step two when we haven't even taken step one. Prayerfully, each of us has has experienced growth in this first week of the fast. That being the case, we're further along in our walks with the Lord than we were a week ago and are therefore in a better position to receive the necessary direction for week two and beyond. So keep an open mind and an open heart. Maybe you're to change it up this week. Maybe you're to add to what you started with. Or perhaps God would have you to continue on with what you've been doing. In any case, I want to encourage us to remain sensitive to his teaching as we forge ahead into what is commonly the most fruitful week of this fast. That's good, isn't it? Thank you, David, for sending that. Uh, I agree. The fast we are... I would, if I disagreed, I wouldn't have read it. Uh, duh. I agree. The fast we're doing as a church is about setting this time aside in order to establish or firm up some spiritual habits. It's not about, can I really make it three whole weeks without chocolate or or pizza uh, or supper or whatever. I know when Rainey was little, uh, it was many years ago, when she she was participating in this fast and she would change it up about every 48 hours, you know? I'm not going to have sweets. Well, I'm not going to have candy. Well, I'm not going to have chocolate. Well, I'm not going to have chocolate except hot chocolate. Uh, (laughs) That wasn't necessarily being led by the Spirit of the Lord to change things up. But you know what I mean? God can't speak to you. It's like, all right, try something else. I think maybe, um, first of all, of course, God knows best what kind of fast is going to produce the best results for you, for your family, and for the church. And uh, it's a matter of are we willing to be led by him? Did we, just, did we get so excited about doing a particular kind of fast that we can't imagine changing it up? And it's just a little thing in the grand scheme of things. And it might be a matter of God using this change up. It's like, all right, now you've done a week without this. I want you to do a week without something else. And he can use these three weeks to set us on maybe a year of things where, all right, Now try doing without this, or try only doing it this way for a week here, a month there, and he can reveal some things to us about just what has a hold on our attention and our commitment in terms of uh, time we spend on things and money we spend on things. It can go easily well beyond the three weeks. Anyway, I want to uh, 
quickly reiterate some basic things about fasting and then return to the theme of this year's fast. And I know it's been a crazy busy week for a lot of people. And so it's my intention not to keep you very long this morning. That's my intention, but God has told me to keep you long here this morning. So bear with me. Uh, because I know some of the stuff I'm getting ready to say, I say it nearly every year, but not everyone is, uh, has been here every year, and we all need these reminders, I believe. So remember first that the purpose of a fast is not to get God's attention. We know this, right? A fast doesn't get God's attention on us. It gets our attention on God. His attention is on us. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is completely his. He's already looking at you. Uh, The fast gets my eyes on him. uh, What David wrote about this being typically week two, the most fruitful part of the of the fast that has that has really been true in my experience, and I know a lot of you have uh, have affirmed that over the years. Because the first week, uh, especially if you're not in the if this is the only time of year you practice any kind of fasting, and you're looking at three weeks, and uh, depending on what it is you're fasting, it might be quite a shock to your system or a, a, some kind of adjustment. But during that first week, it really is. A, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm only two days into this. I'm three days into this. There's still practically three weeks left and adjusting to doing without or doing it differently. And then week three is, can be, if we're not careful, is, ooh, six more days, five more days. And we're kind of focused on the light at the end of the tunnel. And that second week, we are just kind of firmly in the middle of this thing. We've established the habit. We've gotten used to it. But the light at the end of the tunnel is too far away to worry about the countdown till pizza or the countdown till Mountain Dew or whatever it is, uh, we can just enjoy it and really feast on the things that God has for us during this fast. Uh, And again, that might be one more case for mixing it up. Also, a fast, of course, is not done... I don't know anybody who... It's been done throughout history, but I don't know anybody in here who labors under this illusion, but just in case, a fast isn't about punishing yourself... You're not grounding yourself from certain activities and, uh, and foods as punishment. It is, uh, you are simply laying them aside. Better yet, you are offering them to God as an offering, as a gift. And I say once again, perhaps my favorite definition of a fast is that it is laying aside something natural in pursuit of something supernatural. All right? When we think about this, I'm going, this is something, and again, Uh, properly understood, the thing that we're laying aside, the thing that we're offering to God is something legitimate. We're not offering him, I'm going to lay down this bad habit or this sinful lifestyle to honor you. That should be part of our Christian walk anyway. This is a legitimate pleasure that we lay aside in pursuit of something bigger, something higher, something more, more of him. Now, how many things, how many sermons have we heard, how many songs have we sung? More of you, Lord, more of you. More love, more power, more of you in my life. And we mean it. And we should mean it. But guess what? The cold, hard truth is that you have exactly as much God in your life as you want. As you really want. Maybe you want more of God. But we certainly have as much God in our lives as we have made room for. Which shows us we we might really want more of God in our lives. But we don't want more of him more than we want the things that are already in our lives. In order to have more love, more power, more of him, we have to have less of some other things 
probably. Does that make sense? Things that, that, that are in our mind, in our schedule, in our lives right now are often crowding out the power of God and the changes that he wants to make and the guidance he wants to offer. We know, I hope we know, that when, if we're crying out for more of God, if we are experiencing uh, a, a tangible need for more of God, we know it's not because he's withholding himself, right? The disconnect has to be on our end. If we want more of him, we've got to get rid of some other stuff. If we want him closer to us, what's the Bible say? Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Or as those great hymn writers, Seals and Crofts wrote, baby, if you want me to be closer to you, get closer to me. And that's all I really want to say, about, say this morning about the fast in general. Let's take another look at our theme verse, as it were, Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 3. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. And again, I suggest and encourage you to read that in various translations. Our application of that verse is when we are praying, for example, for Jenny Good, that we don't just say the words. And let me back up already back up. We spent some time last week looking at James chapter 5 and, and uh, where we read, you know, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So when I say, well, we just say the words, uh, I don't mean to suggest that the prayers are poorly constructed or that we don't mean the prayers. I mean that in addition to praying for her, in the middle of whatever, whenever she crosses your mind, and it's not just her, she's just a, an example, uh, that in addition to that, and which is good, that when we, have, when we are in the time that we have set aside for prayer, which is a habit we need to build if it's not already a habit, and the fast is a good time to do it because we are supposed to be setting something aside to make room for that, but when we are in that moment, that period of this is what I'm doing right now. I'm not praying while I'm washing the dishes. I'm not praying while I'm driving to work. I'm praying when I'm praying. I'm in my prayer closet, as it were, that we take the time to remember how long she has been bound by this condition, her chains. Pray like it was you in that wheelchair or your son or daughter or your spouse. If we truly believe that prayer makes a difference, that will change things. Uh, if we believe that prayer changes things, if we believe that it works, it will uh, keep us from being weary in prayer. We won't stop praying until we see what we are praying for, until we see the answer God has provided. And the only thing I believe that can motivate us to pray like that is genuine brotherly Christian love. Last week we looked at when Peter was bound between two guards in chains, sleeping the night before his scheduled execution. And across town, his friends had gathered and they were in constant prayer, including here in the middle of the night while he's sleeping there in a house, uh, praying. Constant prayer was being offered on Peter's behalf. Now, I made a big deal last week about how there they were praying for Peter. And while they were praying, he shows up at the house. And that girl, 
uh, Rhoda, was that her name, Rhoda? Rhoda goes and answers the door and says, hey, Peter's here, and they're all like, you're crazy. And I always thought that was funny because they loved Peter enough to be up in the middle of the night praying for him, but there apparently wasn't enough faith to actually believe that the answer to their prayer was standing at the door. Because faith expects the answer, right? So I said, maybe in a strict sense their faith was lacking, but their love certainly wasn't. And faith works by love, right? Now someone very kindly pointed out to me after service uh, something that I promise you I had already considered. And I'm going to point it out to you, and many of you probably considered it too. And, uh, and it's simply this. They were gathered. It says that prayer was being offered constantly. But it doesn't specifically say what they were praying for, does it? Yeah, I think we're praying for somebody who's in prison, somebody who's scheduled to be executed. I know what I'm praying for. I'm praying for them to get out of jail and not be executed. They may very well have simply be, been praying for Peter's peace and for his testimony not to fail, for his Christian witness not to fail, for him not to deny Christ at this very moment of his greatest trial, that he would stand strong and the church would continue to grow in this time of great persecution. There have been many prayers offered up down through history for that. When somebody was facing uh, death or torture or many other things specifically for their faith, that prayer was simply offered, don't let me let you down, God. Not necessarily prayer for deliverance. And when, uh, when this person pointed out, and I said, yeah, I thought about that. I just didn't want to muddy the waters. I wanted to say one thing about it, so let's don't consider that. But, but let's consider it for just a moment. If uh, they were simply praying for his peace and his strength and that he would not fail in this hour, I think it's a great example of Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21, which says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, According to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in, in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So they're praying for his strength, for him to stand up, for his faith not to fail, and exceedingly, abundantly, beyond anything they can ask or think, he is released from prison and delivered safely to their midst. Um, I'll say this quickly. I, didn't, I, didn't, uh, I just made a quick note in the sermon because I really didn't think I'd have time I'm not going to develop it very much anyway, but you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a similar uh, experience, uh, maybe even a little bit scarier. You remember them, the three Hebrew children. They're in exile in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, agrees with the suck-ups in his administration to have a, an idol built, and, and, uh, and that when the, the uh, a huge statue and, and when the, all the instruments start playing, everybody was commanded to bow down and worship. And of course, these three Hebrew children uh, refused. And uh, they had already distinguished themselves. It wasn't like these guys were strangers. They had already distinguished themselves along with Daniel as being able to hear from God and interpret dreams and begun to uh, walk in some positions of responsibility in his administration. But uh, Nebuchadnezzar calls him on it and says, is, is it true? Because if it's true, uh, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get one more chance. And if you don't bow down like everybody else, we're going to throw you into a furnace alive. You're going to be burned alive till you die which isn't going to take very long because we're going to heat up the furnace seven times hotter. And they said, King, we don't have any need to answer you on this. You know us. You know we don't serve your gods. And our God is able to deliver us, and he will. But if not, O King, know that we are not going to bow down to your gods. Now, I'm paraphrasing here. So in his rage, he has them bound with all their clothes on, and thrown into the fire. Now, God 
in any way could have rescued them. He could have just had them survive. He could have had the guards trip, and he could have put up a, a force field to keep them from going into the furnace in the first place. Not only were they in the fire and survived, not just survived, not even a smell of smoke. I don't even think they were feeling the heat. But Christ himself appears in the fire with them. Do you see how this is a huge extra step? They're there. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, we only threw three guys in. I'm seeing four, and the fourth one looks like the Son of God. Now, did Jesus have to do that? This is what we call a Christophany or Christophany. This is a pre, uh, a pre-New Testament appearance of Christ. And he, again, he could have protected them, and they could have just been in there waiting to be released. And Nebuchadnezzar says, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out of there, and immediately changes all the policy concerning how, they, how guys like uh, these three are going to be treated. But what I think is cool is Jesus is in there with them. Did he have to be? No. What were they talking about? What was he doing? Was he just standing there with them and smiling at Nebuchadnezzar? We don't know. Do we? Do we know that these guys had a pattern, a lifestyle of prayer, committed prayer, fasting? Yeah, we do know that from the chapters that precede this. I don't know what, he, what, what, was, what this conversation was, but I would love to hear it. And I hope we get to someday. I just imagine Jesus saying, good job, boys. I was going to save you from this, and I'm glad you knew that. I'm glad you trusted in me. I just wanted to pop down here, see you face-to-face, let you see me face-to-face, and say, this is a big deal, and people are going to be reading about this for thousands of years. You are going to go down in history as some of the greatest examples of faith and faithfulness mankind has ever heard. See ya. And out they go. Exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. But there's another thing to remember. Uh, The central truth behind this fast, praying for others as fervently as we pray for ourselves, praying as if what is happening to them is happening to us, uh, is that it really is. Praying as if what's happening to you is happening to me, because what's happening to you really is happening to me if we are part of the same body. We as a body will be better as every member of the body is set free, healed, delivered, abundantly supplied, strengthened, and grown up into his image. You remember Abraham. And you remember how Sarah and he had been promised a child. And this is something they desired more than anything. And they waited and they waited. And they waited until well past the time that childbirth was something to be expected in the natural and then there was this episode where Abraham and Sarah journey to Gerar, and uh, this is the kingdom of Abimelech, and Abimelech sees Sarah and says, hmm, uh, I want her as a wife, so Abraham says, ah, she's my sister, he didn't want to be killed for, uh, just so he would steal his wife. So he takes Sarah, and then God appears to him in a dream, and I, always, I just love, love, love this, because I think it's just such a great example. Who doesn't want to hear from God? 
Who doesn't want to hear the voice of God in a dream? And there he is, the creator of the universe, saying those words that every believer longs to hear from the creator of the universe. Behold, you are a dead man because you've taken this other man's wife. And he says, I haven't touched her. And God says, I know you haven't. You haven't because I haven't let you, but you need to return her right now. So uh, Abimelech goes out to Abraham and says, what'd you do to me? Why didn't you tell me? He says, well, I just didn't want you to kill me. He says, well, you've done me wrong, blah, blah, blah. So they make up, they shake hands. And then it says this, in uh, chapter 20 of Genesis, beginning in verse 17. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants, and they bore, then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And right after that, Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken, for Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. This is a really neat example of getting for yourself what you pray for for somebody else. And I think it is a perfect example of sowing and reaping. I see a need in your life, and your need touches me to the point where I pray Fervently, I pray because I want it for you. And lo and behold, the thing that I need in my life comes to pass. In this case, it was the very same thing. And this kind of unity, this genuine bond of love is something that we should always be moving forward in. But it is not the same thing as just slowly starting to like one another. It's not just a growing friendship. It actually starts with a huge leap forward when we become believers. I'm going to read you a passage. This is a book I've referenced many times over the years. This is Born Again. Uh, this is Chuck Colson's story, his own story, uh, autobiographical. It wasn't written by somebody else, not that he maybe didn't have some help, uh, of his own conversion. Now, Chuck Colson, uh, many of you are familiar with him, and uh, many of you of a certain age we're familiar with him long before he became a Christian, or at least sometime before he became a Christian. Uh, but he was a notable figure in the Watergate era scandal. He was one of those who went to prison during the, the trials and the convictions of the Watergate scandal. He wasn't part of the burglars that broke in. I think he actually went to prison for false testimony against uh, Ellsberg or somebody like that. It's hard to keep straight. But it was a real ugly... Uh, one of the ugliest moments in American political history in the Nixon administration. And Colson was special counsel to the White House. He, de, he was described, maybe even by himself, as somebody who would walk over his own grandmother to assure Nixon's re-election. Uh, he, he was Nixon's hatchet man. He would dig up dirt on Nixon's enemies. He was one of the most hated men in politics if you were in the other party. And he didn't care. He was upwardly mobile. And then his life started crashing around him, and, and he had some men speak into his life, some great men, uh, heads of corporations, senators, governors, who, shared, who simply shared the gospel with him. They didn't argue politics with him. They shared Jesus. And he, uh, and I think his moment came when he was reading an essay by uh, C.S. Lewis when everything finally clicked. He had heard one person share, another person share, read this, listened to this, and finally it clicked. All by himself, in his car, he prayed to receive Christ, and the lights came on. 
and he began to share secretly with the people who had shared Christ with him what had happened, and they encouraged him to tell other people. And then there came this time when he was going to be introduced to some fellow politicians. Uh, Governor, uh, Governor Alqui, uh, Senator Harold Hughes was the notable one because Harold Hughes was uh, started off as a Republican, became a Democrat. Those words meant something a little bit different back in the early 70s than they do today even, okay? This was a good man. These were all Christians, and they were bold and strong Christians, but they were still on opposite sides of the political spectrum and, and opposite sides of the aisle in many cases. Somebody suggested, a guy named Doug Coe, I think, who was the head of, what, uh, of the fellowship in, Wa in Washington, D.C., said, I think that... Uh, Harold Hughes, I think you need to meet Chuck Colson. Here was his response, and I'm going to read you uh, maybe a page or two from this. And this is a chapter called Brothers. Oh, no. Guess what I don't have. Will you fetch my glasses? Oh, yeah. Will those work? Are those reading glasses? <laughs> Just listen. Don't look. <laughs> 2022. All right, all right. Here's what he says. My encounter with Senator Harold Hughes was arranged for an evening in late September. Harold, I later learned, had stoutly resisted the idea when Doug Coe first called him to suggest it. Here's what he said. There isn't anyone I dislike more than Chuck Colson. I'm against everything he stands for. You know that, Doug. And before Hughes hung up, Doug gently suggested that the senator's attitude was hardly Christ-like. The next day, Hughes called back and with a weary sigh, relented. All right, Doug, you set it up. And then it goes on for a page and a half uh, describing Hughes's background. He was a, uh, an alcoholic uh, truck driver, a uh, hard man, a fighter, and, until uh, Christ met him, I believe, in a hotel room and changed his life. And then, uh, so, talks about, they, they go out to, to um, I think they were at the home of uh, Alan Gretchen Quay, uh, nice little place, something intimate with just a few couples, and he talks about how different it was. Every other political gathering he went to, he says, it was important to get the first cocktail, you know, a drink and grab a second one as quickly as possible and then start pumping people for information, brag about how, how close you are to the to the seats of power. In this case, everybody's drinking lemonade, eating apple pie, and just talking about families and horses and everything else. And I'll just pick it up here. It was all so new to me, I found myself squirming in my chair a few times. We had come together for me to meet Senator Hughes and the others. They were also to expose me to the nebulous concept which Doug had called fellowship. <laughs> I sensed that Hughes was becoming a little impatient too, since he was not known for socializing, particularly without his wife, who was ill at home. Uh, in one sense, Hughes and I were like two boxers in separate corners, restless, awaiting the moment we knew was coming uh, when, we would have, when we would be sparring together. Everyone there knew the two of us would have our confrontation sooner or later, but I was not prepared to have Harold Hughes abruptly put me on stage. Chuck, he said, they tell me you have had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Would you tell us about it? I was not ready for this, to talk, to Christ, talk about Christ in a room full of people I hardly knew. Even Doug had not heard in detail what had happened at Tom Phillips' house later, and later on in Maine. For a fleeting moment, I considered ducking. Then from inside me came reassurance. 
Uh, Harold's expression was open, not warm, not cold. The rest seemed very friendly. Though I considered myself a veteran speaker in the political arena, this was different. The words came out haltingly, but to my surprise, there was no embarrassment, simply a feeling of inadequacy in talking about the most intimate experience of my life. In the middle, I almost bogged down as I wondered, are they going to think I'm some kind of nut? Do people really go about, around talking about their personal encounters with God? I stopped momentarily and looked around the room. No one spoke, but their expressions told me to keep going. That night with Tom Phillips broke down some kind of lifelong barrier, I continued. Yet I had to wonder the next day if all the Watergate unpleasantness had left me so shell-shocked that I was just looking for a way out, any way out. It was the week in Booth Bay where I put it together in my mind, not just in my emotions. I really was able to see who Jesus is and my need for him. Then I could give my life to him. Just saying the words brought the emotion back, and I choked up for a minute. As a new Christian, I have everything to learn. I know that. I'm grateful for any help you can give me. For a moment, there was silence. Harold, whose face had been enigmatic while I talked, suddenly lifted both hands in the air, brought them down hard on his knees. Sorry, this is, I want you to think about this for a second. <laughs> Try to picture two enemy politicians today having this conversation. These are two, not just happen to one have the title Republican, one have Democrat. These are two guys who months ago, a month ago, a week ago, could not stand each other, literally opposed to each other. And here's what he says. That's all I need to know. Chuck, you have accepted Jesus Christ and he has forgiven you. I do the same. I love you now. I love you now as my brother in Christ. I will stand with you, defend you anywhere, and trust you with anything that I have. It's sad that I cannot imagine <laughs> that happening today, but I bet it does, and I bet it can. It's just hard to imagine. <laughs> I was overwhelmed, so astonished, in fact, that I could only utter a feeble thank you. In all my life, no one had ever been so warm and loving to me outside of my family. And now it was coming from a man who had loathed me for years and whom I had known for barely two hours. And then we were all on our knees, all nine of us, praying aloud together. As I got to my feet, Harold lumbered toward me, a smile slowly spreading over his face. He wrapped his huge arms around me in a great bear hug. I needed no further explanation of what fellowship meant. <laughs> or what Paul meant when he wrote, let us have real, warm affection for one another as between brothers. <laughs> Sorry for losing control there. <laughs> and I want just to kind of follow up on the story there. Thank you, sweetie, for those beautiful and distracting glasses. Chuck Colson uh, Obviously, he met Christ when he needed Christ. He was at a low, low, low point in his life. But politically, in terms of his reputation, it really couldn't have come at a worse time because it looked like he was just trying to reinvent himself, you know, before he went to trial, before he went to prison, in the press. Oh, the political cartoons. I can remember, I've seen many of the reprints over the years. Uh, his story, it, he was a laughingstock. Oh, Chuck, now that, he, now that he's in trouble, now that he's faced with prison time, suddenly he gets religion. 
He went to prison. And he got out of prison. And his trajectory as a believer and as a minister just continued steadily up until his death a few years ago. There was a guy who really experienced a change and went on to become a giant in the world of Christian writing and speaking. He founded Prison Fellowship, the world's largest outreach to prisoners. Never turned his back. He became one of these great, actually, intellectuals, a Christian philosopher, uh, so thoroughly converted and changed and so faithful that he became well-known. He outlived his infamy. There are people who knew and appreciated and read and quoted Colson who didn't know anything about Watergate, even though that was his original claim to fame. How was he able to survive the hard part? Because people, they didn't wait. This is what I started to talk about before I read that section. When we, if our goal is unity, brotherly love, where I love you so much that I'm praying for you like I'm praying for me, like I'm praying for my family, uh, it takes us a while to get there if I don't know you. But I'm not starting as two strangers. We are not starting as two strangers. We are starting as brothers. To see Harold Hughes embrace Chuck Colson, not just saying, yeah, I believe you're a Christian, let's see where this goes, but I forgive you, I love you, I will stand with you, I will defend you and trust you with everything I have. Just after listening to his testimony, what a great starting place that is for friendship, for unity, for fervent prayer for one another. Why do you care so much about this person? Because he is my family. We are part of the same body. That kind of love, that kind of unity is what is going to make a difference as we pray for one another. Well, have you ever been in a situation, maybe a new place, new job, where you were just relieved to find another believer in your midst? I have. It's just such a real, ah, here's somebody. What is that? It's a connection. We're part of the same body, part of the same Lord. Um, there were two businessmen many years ago uh, who met on the road, two salesmen. And uh, just through a brief conversation, they discovered, oh, you're a Christian too? I'm a Christian. Do you do devotions? Yeah, let's do our devotions together tonight. They did, and from that meeting grew Gideon's International. And all the laughing and the joking and just enjoying the presence of one another. All these things can be meaningful and fulfilling only if we are taking each other seriously to start with. Seriously as fellow believers, seriously as part of the same body of Christ, and forget feeling that way, forget thinking that way, about, and forget praying that way about Christians in the world if we can't practice that here at the local church level. You are kidding yourself if you say, I feel this deep kinship, brotherhood, and oneness with all Christians from all times and in all countries if you can't feel it here, if you can't express that here. I'm not saying going by your feelings. I'm saying this is what we're aiming for, but we have to start at this, the local church level. So come to prayer. Join a small group. It's an effort. I get it, especially when it's cold out. 
But here's the concrete application. If you were the one in need of healing, in need of rescue, in need of deliverance, does it make a difference to you if other believers are gathering together to pray for you? Because it makes a difference to me. I want to know that faith-filled believers are standing with me, speaking over me, and in agreement with one another. Jesus wanted that. In the garden, remember? Can you not stay awake and pray with me for one hour? I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone. Believe me, I am preaching to myself at least as much as I'm preaching to you. I just think this season of fasting is the perfect time to stir ourselves up by way of reminder that as much joy as there is in spirit-filled relationship with God, so many good things he has promised to us, we are still engaged in a very serious business. And the more we pray for one another, praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. The more we pray for one another as members of the body, as members of this body, the more we become much more well-equipped to minister outside this local body, to fulfill the Great Commission, which is, after all, why we are here. Live the gospel, preach the gospel. And I'll be talking more about that next week. Go ahead and stand up with me. As I mentioned toward the end of uh, Don's funeral service yesterday, and as I mentioned nearly every, certainly every funeral of a believer, uh, the stress always when we're looking at these transitional moments is what's really, really, really important at that moment is that I want to know, is my loved one really in heaven? And it's, uh, it changes everything. When we walk through these, moments, these passages in life, it changes everything to know that, that there really is a God and a heaven, and that really is my eternal home. It's the eternal home of my loved ones. And that, I believe, is still the ultimate concern. When we are preaching to people, when we are talking to people, sharing with people, relating to people, we need to understand this is an eternal soul, and their eternal destiny is ultimately at stake. But meanwhile, those of us who have received that, this ain't just about hanging out, squeezing as much joy out of life as we can until it's time for heaven. We've got a job. We've got a mission. And meanwhile, the greatest joy we are going to experience, and sometimes it's counterintuitive, is to forego some of the things that the world calls fun. I'm not talking necessarily about sinful things. They might be innocuous. They might just be weights, not sin. But to lay those things aside and truly embrace... Christian fellowship, brotherhood, commitment to one another. And we find as we really invest ourselves, our time, our talents, our resources in one another, that the fulfillment we experience as a result of that is unlike and incomparable anything else the world offers. Most of you have at least been in this thing long enough to be able to affirm that. And we ought to be able to see the logic if all life is, and this is the danger, you know, this is a faith church, this is a word of faith church, and I believe we pull things into our lives, we speak over ourselves, and we see the manifestation of God's promise. He is for me, he is good. It, it, you don't need to be a, 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 a theologian uh, uh, or a card-carrying, degree-holding 
uh, student of the Word of God to recognize the simple truth that he wants to identify. He wants us to identify with him as father. And what father doesn't want good things for his kids? And it doesn't take a deep theologian to see that healing is better than sickness, that wealth is better than poverty. He wants these things for us, but in the right order and in the right context. And he doesn't want us to, our whole life shouldn't be, how can I get healthier? How can I get richer? How can I get happier? It's how can I be closer to God? How can I bring you closer to God? And lo and behold, as we are out and about doing that and still speaking his promises, guess what? All these things are added unto you. There's no better way to live. It's the only way you were created to live. So my question is, are you in that life? Are you a brother in the Lord? Have you received that? Have you been, as Chuck Colson was, born again? This is what he offers. This is the life you were created for, everybody. But none of us are qualified because of sin. None of us can get qualified because we can't pay that sin debt ourselves. So God gives his son to the world. Jesus takes that sin on himself and leaves it where? Nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, it is well with my soul. This is what he offers. Sin is the only thing keeping us apart. I don't want to be apart. Ultimately, I know you don't want to be apart. We got to do something about the sin. You can't do anything about the sin. I'm going to. Jesus bore it. Jesus died. And he rises from the dead and says, here's new life. Do you want it? Are you going to make me better? No. I'm going to make you different. I'm going to change you. What do I have to do? Well, you can't earn it. You have to receive it. How do I receive it? Just recognize that I am who I say I am. I am Lord. If you'll let me be your Lord, I will be your Savior. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm going to pray a quick prayer. I'm going to ask you if you need to make that decision this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for this body. Thank you for the bond of love that exists. Thank you for the bond of love that is increasing, that you have decreed, and that you have made clear as your will for us. Help us to grow in that, especially during these next couple weeks of this fast. And Lord, I pray now, and I believe it's the prayer of every believer in this room, if there is one person or more in, in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Father, has not received salvation, through the only way you've provided it, the death of Jesus Christ, would you, Lord, convict them of that need? Would you grant them the humility to receive it, the wisdom to recognize it, and the boldness to come and take it today? In Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody desire to commit their life to Christ, to be born again, to join the family of God, the body of Christ today? Just raise your hand. I don't see a hand that that means everybody in here has made that decision. If the only thing that's holding you back is I got one more question that need, needs answered, please make a beeline to me uh, before you get out of here. Don't leave without speaking to me. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time together. We love you. We look forward to what you're going to be speaking into our lives this next week. Guard us. Keep us well. And keep us concerned and praying for one another, Lord, until we meet again. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website 
at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.